Okay, before we return to our story, I want to talk about something that I've been getting emails about lately. You see, before we had the episode on the Battle of Hastings, I got emails asking if we'd ever reach the conquest. And now that we're there, I'm starting to get emails asking if we're ever going to get past the conquest. And I think one of the reasons why I get these kinds of emails is because when many of you start the show, there are hundreds of episodes for you to binge through. And so you can listen to them as long as you want, whenever you want. But once you catch up, it starts to feel like forever to get to a new episode. But I really haven't changed. I'm still doing what I've always done. When I hit something important, I always give it the attention and the time it deserves. I mean, I'm still the same guy who spent literally months talking about food, drink, clothing, and construction. And actually, I got emails when I was covering that period, too. The fact is, the BHP is a strange beast, and I really appreciate that you guys stick with me on it because I do go about it in kind of a wild way. But at the same time, it does make a thing that doesn't exist anywhere else. Because ultimately, the way most pop history talks about history during this period is along the lines of William arrived, everyone was impressed with how cool and awesome he was, and so they came out of their caves, they stopped being cavemen, and then everyone spent their time in sexy jousting tournaments. Then eventually, Henry VIII got married, and he just kind of kept getting married. And that approach gives you the impression that nothing important happened before the conquest and also nothing important really happened after the conquest for a long time. But this is a very important period and it's also highly complex, especially the period after the Battle of Hastings. I mean, think about it this way. Can you remember back a few decades ago, you know, when the pandemic began? Yeah, that was actually just three years ago, and the four years before that weren't exactly boring. Do you remember when the President of the United States caused an international incident because he wasn't allowed to buy Greenland? Probably not. And the reason why you forgot about that is because it wasn't even the biggest news story of the day. The fact is that when you're in a period of change, like the era we're living through right now, the details start to pile up. And that's because everything's on a knife's edge, or what's often called a period of high contingency. And what that means is that the shape of the future can be highly influenced, and as such, the outcomes are contingent upon damn near every decision or mistake that's made. So if you're interested in why things happen the way they do, you need to know the shape and scope of those contingencies that are literally molding our future with every step. And that's why, in times like these, the presence of bridges across the U's or the finances of porn stars become critically important for understanding what comes next. So, in order to tell this story correctly, the BHP has to be focused like a laser on this period. Otherwise, I risk falling into the same pitfalls that so many pop historians do. And I know this period is heavy. I'm feeling it too. I am desperate to get past all this misery. And there will come a point where things will calm down again, and we can return to a more breezy pace and talk about things like cultural changes that are arising. But right now, the events are coming fast and furious, and the shape of the future is dependent on how all these events play out, even the seemingly minor ones. 
And for the future listeners who right now are binging through this episode and who are a little baffled that people are complaining about my pace, your time will come. And what it does, and you find yourself having to wait for new releases, try to keep this preamble in mind. All right, let's get to the show. Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 417, the, let's be honest, far more than four horsemen. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Joanne, Adrian, and Joe for signing up already. When we ended the last episode, William and his knights had ravaged the North. He had spared nothing and no one. Men, women, children, animals, buildings, even the plants. Everything between York and Durham, a stretch of nearly a hundred miles, was annihilated. Now, the people of the North were trying to find safety in the woods and wild places. But William and his knights were systematically moving through the countryside and pressing into every nook and cranny. So no place could stay safe for long. It must have been a living nightmare. And the chaos of William's genocide reached far beyond Northumbria. Even the continental figures who had come over looking to exploit opportunities after the conquest were getting caught up in the destruction. In one such story which was recorded about a century after these events, we learn about the fate of a monk named Benedict, who was originally from Burgundy. It turned out that shortly after William invaded, Benedict was visited by the ghost of St. Germain. And he told the monk that his purpose was to found an abbey at Selby. But here's the thing about saintly visions. They'll tell you what to do, and they'll tell you where to go, but they never seem to come prepared with the necessary paperwork. But somehow, Benedict eventually managed to secure the required land grants and charters for his abbey at Selby. So, while I can't say for certain whether a saint really did want a continental abbey right next to the ewes, I can definitely say that someone in William's court did, because that paperwork got done. And, armed with his political and possibly spiritual support, Benedict headed to England, eager to begin his new career as a general contractor. But here's the thing with Benedict's political and spiritual backers. None of them were English. Every single one of them, corporeal or not, were continental figures, just like our boy Benedict. And none of them knew the difference between Selby, which was a town that lay next to the River Ouse and was just down the way from York, and Salisbury, which was over 200 miles to the south in Wiltshire. So, Benedict, newly arrived in England, was wandering around and nattering on about how he needed to find a good spot to build his new Yorkshire Abbey here in Wiltshire. And I'm guessing that most of the people of Wiltshire were watching this and thought the poor guy had lost his mind. But, Eventually, a guy named Edward the Rich and a chaplain named Theobald decided this was just getting too embarrassing to watch anymore, 
And so they tried to tell the Burgundian monk that he was on completely the wrong side of the island. And as they were English-speaking people encountering a language barrier, I'm pretty sure they tried to go about this by shouting every single word very slowly at Benedict, probably with a few helpful gestures northish to make it all clear. But eventually, Eddie and Theo managed to steer the bewildered man of God onto a merchant ship bound for York. And he actually managed to reach Yorkshire, we're told he got there in William's fourth year, which means he arrived between Christmas of 1069 and Christmas of 1070, which is just an incredible time to go to York. I mean, the city was burned. William and his knights were rampaging through the north, killing everything. Why wouldn't you want to visit at a time like this? And it's at about this point that I wonder if St. Germain actually liked Benedict at all. And in fact, if we're going to take saintly visions even slightly seriously, it should be entered into evidence that while alive, St. Germain visited Britain multiple times. And in one story, he personally led the Britons in battle against an invading force of raiders. So maybe St. Germain was on the island's side all along, and our guy Benny was on the wrong end of a spiritual prank. Either way, though, Benedict was now in a country where he didn't speak the language, and the only people who did speak his language were currently murdering all the people that were supposed to be his flock. Oh, and speaking of flocks, the Normans were killing those, too. And also the plants. So it was a complete catastrophe, and Benedict couldn't even take shelter in York Minster because William and his knights had burned that down, too. So I suspect while trying to not take this super personally, Benedict finally took shelter under a huge oak tree that was locally known as Stricka's Oak. And camping next to a tree in the middle of a war zone might seem crazy to you, but keep in mind that this was the kind of man who thought it was a great idea to travel to England and found an abbey without even consulting a single map. So, there he was, sitting under a tree like an off-brand Buddha. And eventually, a ship came traveling down the River Ouse and into sight. The ship was carrying a Norman military detachment, led by Hugh Fitzbaldrick. Now, Hugh was the lucky man that had recently been tapped by King William to serve as the new Sheriff of York. Since, you might remember, the previous Sheriff, William Mallet, had been captured by the good folks of Yorkshire. And it turns out that, like his predecessor, Sheriff Hugh was having a hell of a time with this new job. It's not clear precisely what happened, but by the time that Benedict could see him, he was floating down the ooze and trying to get out of the way of something dangerous that was caused by the war between William and the Northumbrians. So it sounds like our boys were still putting up a pretty decent fight at this point. But in an apparent turn of luck for Benedict, Sheriff Hugh spotted the disoriented monk sitting under a tree, and he decided to look after him, because obviously somebody had to. Honestly, it was pretty surprising that he hadn't been beheaded by a knight yet. So Hugh took Benedict to William, and he convinced the king to provide the guy with some support. With the king's express backing, Benedict then worked to build a community at Selby. And after a while, he did gain a small following of traumatized people who were pretty eager to hear about how the afterlife is way better than this life. But at the same time, he was still in Northumbria. 
and he was still a continental figure who had seized a huge amount of land in the north thanks to grants from the very same man who was butchering the people who had previously lived on those lands. So obviously, not everyone was thrilled with the presence of this monk. And the people who'd been forced to hide in the woods and wild places, in particular, were thinking that Benedict, as a man interested in spreading the word to new frontiers, should go out ahead and share his sermons in that most final of frontiers. And we're told the bandits and outlaws often launched attacks, presumably in a neighborly effort to help get him there. Now, this is just one story of one man in one corner of Northumbria. But based on the record, it seems like things like this were quite common. Because we hear about this ongoing situation echoed through multiple sources. The Historia Regum tells us that the empty, exterminated villages, quote, became lurking places for wild beasts and robbers and were a great dread to travelers, end quote. Jumiege also speaks of how bandits and robbers were commonplace in the aftermath of the extermination. Because of course they were. William and his knights were violating every norm, ethic, and moral of the time. And in the process, they had created a situation that was so bad that people were literally resorting to cannibalism to try and survive. And you don't completely destroy a civilization like that and expect the survivors of that atrocity to play nice. And so, while the Northumbrians were suffering the brunt of the pain from William's campaign of extermination, even the Continentals, who had been brought over to colonize the North, were dealing with consequences of what he had done. Though, I doubt William cared all that much. Our sources actually go way out of their way to explain that William's actions in the North were not a military campaign. Malmesbury and Orderick, who again relied on Poitiers, specifically tell us that William wasn't motivated by strategy or a larger plan. They tell us specifically he was motivated by rage. This was an emotional outburst. It was a deliberate infliction of pain in order to punish. So I'm not at all surprised that we read of Sheriff Hugh floating down the ooze, trying to escape some sort of ferocious but unrecorded Northumbrian counterattack. Nor am I surprised to hear that a continental monk was having a hell of a time building his religious community because he kept getting targeted by local Northumbrians who were taking refuge in the woods. This was the situation that they were spending months upon months deliberately creating. And unfortunately, we know enough about this kind of violence to know how it spreads in all directions. Meaning that even if the people who are taking to the woods and living as Silvatici were doing so for political reasons, it's highly unlikely that their violence would only touch their political enemies. Instead, it almost certainly impacted a wide variety of people, including the vulnerable. Studies of similar modern atrocities suggest that these events cause a cascade of trauma and violence that seeps into a society and also lashes out of it. People become more violent to children, to the needy, to the physically vulnerable. 
Non-fighters of all kinds get swept up into the damage, and that resulting social damage echoes for literally generations. And we have every reason to suspect that this was the case for the Northumbrians as well. And compounding everything, William was doing this in winter. And we're told he was going absolutely everywhere with his mounted army in his efforts to destroy all life. And that's an important detail. Because cavalry is incredibly damaging to agriculture. If a field is wet from recent rain, even a small detachment of cavalry can damage a field to the point where it won't produce properly for over a year. And this wasn't a small detachment. And it definitely was raining. So even if we set aside that William was giving orders to set the fields alight, just the presence of this cavalry-based army in winter would devastate the local flora and agriculture for years to come. The Knights of Normandy were destroying one of England's main breadbaskets just by being there. On top of that, we're told that they were explicitly killing the animals. So even if the fields managed to escape being burned or trampled, and Sir Ralph managed to find some peasants to bring north to work on them, and even if he managed to acquire tools and a granary and all the things necessary to make a farm work, because don't forget William and his knights burned those too, there was still the issue of who was going to pull that plow. Because oxen take three years to grow to a size where they can work the fields. So what are they going to do? Harness unfirth to the yoke? I mean, probably, yeah. But that wasn't going to be all that efficient. Basically, even if William made it English policy to immediately repopulate the north and replant the fields, those fields wouldn't be able to produce much before about 1075. And even to get that quick of a turnaround would involve a huge redevelopment program. And William wasn't interested in redeveloping the North. He wanted to destroy it. And not just the North. The famine that William was creating was strongest in Northumbria, but it stretched all throughout the kingdom. That's how famines work. And it's important to note that these long-term effects weren't an accident. William and every one of his knights knew precisely what they were doing to the North and to the kingdom in general, because food was the basis of the entire medieval economy. And so even the rich and powerful were well aware of how agriculture worked. After all, their lifestyles depended on it. So when Orderic tells us that the famine that they created claimed the lives of over 100,000 people, what we're reading about is long-term and far-reaching devastation, loss, and generational crisis, all done very deliberately. And, as winter came to an end, William was feeling pretty good about that. He'd accomplished what he set out to do. So he turned his army around and began marching south towards another target of his anger, Chester. Meanwhile, up at Wearmouth, the well-to-do of northern England were still patiently waiting for a ship to take them, along with all their possessions, to somewhere more befitting people of their station. Denmark or Scotland should do nicely. So, they continued to wait for those ships. But speaking of Scotland, they were a whole thing. 
I mean, William was clearly aware of the ties that Scotland had with the Northumbrian elite. And he was also certainly aware that Malcolm posed a very serious threat to him, as William had sent emissaries to the Scottish king, asking him to please not get involved with what he was doing in England. But that didn't work out too well, because Malcolm was involved. I mean, even before this had begun, the Scots were providing shelter to the exiled English nobility. And one of the main architects of the noble involvement in all of this, Earl Gospatrick of Northumbria, was almost certainly a relative of King Malcolm III of Scotland. So Malcolm was deep in it. And as all of this death and devastation was being inflicted upon his neighbors, what was Malcolm doing in response? Well, funny story. He was raiding Northumbria. Now, Simeon, who provides us this story, doesn't tell us precisely why the Scots launched their raid. And Simeon, like Poitiers, definitely puts his own spin on things. So treat this story like we treat all our stories, as a recorded event that was written down by someone who viewed it through their own lens, but from someone who is also from a culture that's alien to our own. And in the case of Simeon, like with many of our ecclesiastical sources, he came from a culture that was far more interested in spiritual truth than factual truth. So while he was recording events that likely occurred, he was also seeing them through a very particular viewpoint that we should keep in mind. But before we begin to pick it apart, let's first dive into that story as it's told. According to Simeon, King Malcolm III of Scotland assembled an enormous army and marched south into Cumberland. He then turned east and marched until they reached the River Tees. Once there, the Scots changed their strategy, and they began to systematically ravage both sides of the river with what Simeon called, quote, fierce devastation, end quote, until they reached a place called the Hundred Springs, which is possibly modern Hunderthwaite. And there, they encountered some English nobles and promptly murdered them. Afterwards, the Scottish army seemed to be getting a little bogged down with all their sick loot, and so Malcolm split his army in two. One portion went back home with, quote, vast booty, end quote, while the rest of his force stayed in England to take advantage of the chaos created by William's campaign of terror. And we're told that Malcolm knew that many of the Northumbrians were in hiding places, taking shelter in woods, caves, or literally anywhere they could hide for a bit. And now that William was marching south, he guessed that survivors would start emerging and would return home with whatever valuables they managed to bring with them. So he organized his forces to lay ambushes along the likely inroads, and then he attacked any refugees they encountered. Simeon tells us that Malcolm pillaged part of Cleveland, seized Hartness, overran the territory of St. Cuthbert, and basically ransacked the whole region. The Scottish king was stealing everything, and he was also killing some people. But what's interesting in this account is that Simeon implies that he saw an important difference between raiding for the purpose of theft and raiding for the purpose of slaughter. While widespread theft from war refugees was likely to cause a huge amount of death due to starvation, the implication in the record is that that kind of attack 
didn't violate basic morality in the same way that William's attack had done. Now, Simeon doesn't explain why one was more acceptable than the other, but I should point out that raiding for theft was one of the ways that the nobility financed their lifestyles, and also how they financed the construction of new abbeys, which the monks who were writing down these events obviously benefited from. So I could make a few guesses as to why the record has this slant. But speaking of those nobles and their fancy outfits, there were a lot of them at Wearmouth, and not all of the English nobility were content to stay in their accommodations on the harbor side while the whole of the earldom was being ravaged. And one man, in particular, had other plans. He wanted to fight. Earl Gospatrick of Northumbria had been responsible for the involvement, and thus the failed leadership, of many of the same rich people who were currently milling around Wearmouth. He was also a man whose family was tied to more royal dynasties than you could shake a stick at. You might also remember that he was the scion of the House of Bamborough. Though, he was also an 11th century English aristocrat, and in classic 11th century English noble style, as soon as the war started to turn against him, he submitted to King William. So, ultimately, kind of a mixed bag from this descendant of Uhtred the Bold. But Gospatrick did want to be bold himself. And while he couldn't go against William, King Malcolm of Scotland was another matter. And so he gathered together a large force of experienced auxiliaries, which at this point in history can mean either cavalry or light infantry. And considering who his new boss was and what had recently happened to Northumbria, I suspect that in this case, the auxiliaries were cavalry, specifically the kind of cavalry who were fluent in French. And with his force assembled, he marched into Cumberland and proceeded to burn pillage, and slaughter his way through the land. So that means that the Norman nobility are killing the Northumbrians, the Scottish nobility are killing the Northumbrians, and the Northumbrian nobility are killing the Northumbrians. Aristocrats. But speaking about the Scottish nobility killing the Northumbrians, all of this pillaging brought them within striking distance of a town that we've been talking about for the last couple weeks. Wearmouth the harbor town that was currently housing a bunch of the English nobility, along with at least one holy man who'd resigned his post and took all his stuff with him. And if you're a raiding army, and you catch wind of a town that is absolutely stuffed with rich people and all their rich people stuff, well, what would you do? Well, here's what Simeon says Malcolm did. Quote, then he destroyed by fire, under his own inspection, the church of St. Peter, the prince of the apostles at Wearmouth. He burnt also other churches with those who had taken refuge in them, end quote. And apparently, as his men were pillaging their way through the harbor town, they discovered, quote, that Edgar Atheling and his sisters, who were beautiful girls of the royal blood, and many other very rich persons, fugitives from their homes, lay with their ships in that harbor, end quote. And Simeon says that the soon-to-be-exiled nobles approached King Malcolm and sought his friendship, and then he, quote, addressed them graciously 
and he pledged himself to grant them and all their friends a residence in his kingdom as long as they chose, end quote. Then, after arranging lodging for Edgar the Atheling and his friends, Malcolm went back to watching his men ravage Wearmouth. And, while he was, quote, still gazing on the Church of St. Peter as it was being consumed by the fire of his men, end quote, he got word of what Gospatric had been up to. And apparently, he'd been going easy on the English so far. Because, quote, scarcely able to contain himself for fury, he ordered his troops no longer to spare any of the English nation, but either to smite all to the earth or carry them off captives under the yoke of perpetual slavery, end quote. Meanwhile, Gospatric, out in Cumberland, had run out of things to burn and kill, and so he, quote, returned with great spoil and shut himself with his allies into the strong fortress at Bamborough, end quote. But he wasn't done. He repeatedly sallied forth as often as possible to attack the Scots. And I suspect that this means he was hitting the Scottish raiding parties that were reportedly ravaging St. Cuthbert's land and setting up ambushes along the roads. And the Scots were, according to Simeon, going absolutely apeshit in response. The monk gives us a catalog of war crimes inflicted by Malcolm's army. Infants snatched from their mothers and thrown to the ground, the elderly being beheaded, death marches, impalings. The picture he paints is horrible. But I also think we should note that those stories are accompanied by him saying things like this. Quote, The Scots, more savage than wild beasts, delighted in this cruelty as an amusing spectacle. These children of the age of innocence, suspended between heaven and earth, gave up their souls to heaven. End quote. He goes on to tell us that Malcolm's rage was so intense that rather than being brought to pity by tears, we're told that the cries of the northerners encouraged the king to press on, and that the ravaging and slave-taking was so severe that Simeon claimed that at the time of his writing, every Scottish home had an English slave or handmaid. And are you starting to see why I warned you to be aware of Simeon's viewpoint? Beyond the fact that Simeon wasn't a census taker, there's also just the logistics of the thing. Is a single army really going to successfully enslave so many people in Northumbria that every single home in Scotland had its own slave? Come on. And while we do know there were a lot of English in Scotland following the conquest, we also know a lot of them were refugees. William had created a very real refugee crisis in the region, and that could certainly account for a lot of the English in Scotland. And even in Simeon's account, he offhandedly mentions that Edgar the Atheling, along with all of his friends, were welcomed by Malcolm as refugees. So the whole thing seems a little hinky. And even the introduction of Edgar is off. Because Edgar wasn't just some random noble who Malcolm was meeting for the first time at Wearmouth. Edgar was his brother-in-law. And yet Simeon has him meeting Edgar by accident in Wearmouth, apparently for the first time. And what's funny about that is that actually contradicts Simeon's own record. And so it feels less like a factual accounting of the meeting and more like a literary flourish. 
where Simeon is trying to explain how Edgar ended up back in Scotland in 1070 and decided to tie up some loose ends by connecting it to Malcolm's raid. The fact is that when reading this record, you have to take into account the style of Simeon and what his goal is, especially when he's discussing what happened to the North and what motivated the Scots. Simeon hailed from Durham, which had been victim to repeated atrocities from pretty much every possible direction. It's the exact scenario that would create generational trauma for the people of the region. The people like Simeon. So of course we see him describing the Scots like completely subhuman monsters from a fable. If atrocities like this happen to your community, you probably would also have some choice words for the people responsible for it. And if your neighbors were killed or enslaved, you might not be all that precise with numbers and instead speak in terms of absolutes, like Simeon did. And I think it's also notable that in Simeon's account, until Malcolm burned the churches, he described things in kind of a humdrum way. Malcolm killed some nobles, stole everything, burned some villages, you know, king shit. But then... With St. Peter's engulfed, all of that changed, which raises the chances that he was describing more of a spiritual truth than a factual one. Namely, that raiding peasants was just business, but raiding the church will put you on the fast path to becoming a subhuman, soulless, wild beast that juggles infants and is barred from heaven. And when I read Simeon, that's the impression I get from him. And because of that, I don't think we can be certain whether the Scottish atrocities that Simeon wrote about happened on the scale that he's describing. But at the same time, armies do awful things all the time. And we do see massive levels of trauma and depopulation in the north. And we do know that the Scots marched on Northumbria. So something clearly happened here. And when thinking about this event, I think it's important to remember that when Edgar the Atheling had been a guest in King Malcolm's court, he had been trying to get the Scots to intervene and fight William. I think we should also remember that during that period, Malcolm had used his position to secure a marriage to Edgar's older sister, Princess Margaret, and that gave him a claim on England. Not the strongest dynastic claim, but definitely stronger than William's. So, in the medieval logic of rulership, Malcolm had cause to march on England. Hell, even if he didn't want to press his own claim, and he just wanted to support someone else's, he still would have had plenty of reasons to do so. His brother-in-law was the dynastic heir to the throne of England, and his cousin, Gospatric, would have made a decent claimant himself, given his relation to King Athelred. So maybe, when all this began he was marching into England for political reasons. And I also think it's notable that when he marched into Northumbria, he went through Cumberland, and he didn't raid it. But you know who did? Gospatric, after he swore fealty to William. And then, when Malcolm was burning that church, he learned that Gospatric raided Cumberland and that is the moment when he went absolutely nuts on the locals. And actually, Simeon, later on in his account, tells us that, quote, Cumberland was at that time under the dominion of King Malcolm, 
not held by right, but subjugated by force, end quote. And scholars theorize it's plausible that Malcolm had acquired the territory as early as 1061. So while it is possible that upon hearing that Northumbria was in chaos and William had a weakened position, Malcolm decided to grab some new land along with any possessions that weren't nailed down. I think it's also possible that Malcolm and the Scots marched into England to assist his brother-in-law in the Northern Revolt. But they arrived too late. The Danes had already abandoned the fight and they'd started raiding the English coastline. And the English nobility had also abandoned the fight and were fleeing to towns further north. But they were already here and they still might be able to take on William. So like any 11th century army, they started raiding. Because among the nobility, burning down Unferth's home and stealing all of his stuff was a valid way to hurt one's political foes. It was like the medieval version of sanctions. And since there were still Silvatici and possibly even the Northumbrian rebel army out there, the fight was still kind of on. And Malcolm, in a way that seems cruel and counterproductive to us now, might have been trying to support it with these raids. And we also know that at this point, the English nobility had abandoned the fight and many of them were swearing loyalty to William. And suddenly, in the middle of that, we have the odd inclusion that Malcolm paused at the Hundred Springs to kill the English nobles assembled there. Like, specifically the English nobles who were there. And that's interesting, especially in the light of the fact that Simeon indicates that the goal of the Scots at this point was theft, not murder. So why did he do it? I mean, maybe he was claiming new territory. That is certainly possible. But if the fight was still on, and Malcolm was a part of it, you could imagine how he would have viewed turncoats. But, even if that was his viewpoint, all of that appears to have changed when Gospatric started to attack the Scottish claimed territory of Cumberland. And then we know the story that plays out from that point on, and you get a catalog of atrocities. It's a plausible explanation. But then again, it could have just as easily been the Scottish nobility responding to financial incentives, and they were simply looking to profit off the Northumbrians' tragedy. It's impossible to know, especially given the nature of the record. But, as far as Simeon and his weird comments go, I'm inclined to think that the description of the ignoble savage was probably just a medieval churchman trying to grapple with how crimes against humanity could occur. And so he placed his focus upon what appeared to him to be the causative element. That's my guess. But regardless of whether or not they started out trying to help, or they just decided to capitalize on a payday, and regardless of whether they were spitefully throwing babies to the ground, or were just stealing all the food that those babies would need to survive the winter, the fact remains that at the end of the day, every one of these guys sucked. And this was the last thing that the people of Northumbria needed. But eventually, finally, it came to an end. William had already left the country. And now even King Malcolm had had his fill. And so he ordered his men to return to Scotland. Meanwhile, further to the south, 
William had reached the rebel city of Chester. You should see me in the crowd. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also join us on Reddit. Uh, the community there continues to be lovely. Uh, much more lovely than the last story that we just told. And you can find links to that in the community section of the thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>